0: Welcome to Ipsodixit, Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Alon Werman, associate professor of law at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. We will discuss his new book, The Second Founding, An Introduction to the 14th Amendment, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome back to the show, Alon.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me, Brian, as always.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you back. I really enjoyed reading and talking to you about your first book. And it's a great pleasure to have you back on to talk about this second one, which has a lot of commonality, but kind of addresses a different theme. So by way of kind of introducing you and your perspective to listeners, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by... Originalism, which you use as a frame for thinking about the 14th Amendment in this book. And, And why do you think originalism can help us think about or better understand something that didn't happen when the Constitution was initially ratified?
1: Yeah, so those are a, a great set of questions. And as you remember, my first book is called The Dead Against the Living, An Introduction to Originalism. And, and this book, although it's called An Introduction to the 14th Amendment, really is an introduction to the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, right? That's what I'm trying to uncover, the original meaning of due process of law, the protection of the laws and the privileges or immunities of citizenship. And so there are a few sort of uh, possibilities here of what originalism can can, can mean, right? One possibility is originalism means that the 14th Amendment leads to the results that in 1868, the framers of the 14th Amendment would have expected, right? Sort of the original expected applications. Uh, Sometimes Justice Scalia fell into this trap of doing originalism, you know, under the substantive due process or, or under the 14th Amendment generally where he would ask, you know, oh, what did they think in 1868? Or, you know, if if these were the practices in 1868 and it wasn't unconstitutional then, it can't be unconstitutional now, right? This is it was his approach in the Hodge's sort of same-sex marriage case. So that's sort of one conception, a conception that I reject. Um, I think originalists today believe that, you know, originalism, stands for the proposition that we interpret the text with the original meaning. And the meaning uh, doesn't change, but it can be applied to new and changing circumstances, right? So that's why the Fourth Amendment applies to GPS devices that police officers put on cars. It's why the First Amendment applies to speech made on the internet, right, and so on. So how does that approach play out in the 14th Amendment? Well, one conception, one, one possibility, and this is actually, I think, the Jack Balkan view, is that the terms of the 14th Amendment are so broad, you know, equal protection, due process, that really originalism requires living constitutionalism in a way, right? How else do you interpret these grand, you know, glittering generalities, right? These majestic generalities in the 14th Amendment um, without, if not, you know, sort of this living constitutional sort of method. My argument, my approach in this book, is something of a halfway point between these two conceptions, right? Original expected application approach and the meaning is so broad that anything goes approach. My claim is that these three key rights bearing provisions, right? Process of law, the protection of the laws and the privileges or immunities of citizenship are all legal terms of art, or at least they're legal terms that have well-defined meanings in the antebellum legal materials, you know, not just court cases, um, but legislation and and famous constitutional battles in English constitutional history from Magna Carta to petition of right. My claim is that these original legal meanings are not nearly as broad as everyone, you know, as the Balkans of the world seem to think, right, or the living constitutionalists uh, argue, but they're not nearly as narrow as justice as Scalia uh, seemed to think. So so that's the originalist approach that I take uh, in this book.
0: Well, so you begin the book by talking about each one of those legal concepts in turn, due process, equal protection, privileges, and immunities. I wonder if if we could kind of dig into each one of those individually. So maybe you could start by talking a little bit about sort of what the conventional understanding of due process is and how your take is is different. So
1: there you know I don't know if my my take is particularly different from what what other originalists have said. I mean there's a wide variety of originalist views on on this and and I tend to agree with one of them right and and that view is that there really was no substantive due process there's been a lot of originalist literature lately uh, making the argument that there was some kind of substantive component to due process there are sort of three versions of that one is this police power version um, Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick but but many others before that done a lot of work in this regard, arguing uh, that there was a general police powers doctrine in the antebellum period, that state legislatures were limited to reasonable exercises of the police power. I go in, and and I don't do it so much in this book, but actually my other scholarship, I've I've, I've talked about this, uh, the police power cases are misunderstood. Uh, If you look at the cases carefully, there were almost no antebellum cases where state legislatures were actually limited to uh, reasonable exercises of the police power, where courts could enforce that, there were lots of cases involving municipalities and municipal corporations. They were limited to reasonable exercises of the police power, and courts could and did enforce that. So, but that's a bit that's a bit different, and I argue about that a little bit in the book and, and elsewhere. But so that's one conception. Another conception is that uh, the, the due process of law prohibited caste legislation. What was called caste legislation. Uh, and uh, Ryan Williams has argued this, other, other scholars uh, have argued this. It's actually the conventional view in the famous Bress Levinson um, Constitutional Law Casebook. They argue that due process was probably understood to be anti-caste legislation, um, that, it, that it prohibited you know, special laws or partial laws, that laws had to be general. I don't know that that's true either. Uh, in my research for this book, and I talk about it, I go through all of those so-called partial legislation cases And each and every one of them involved abrogating judicial procedures for in a particular case or for a particular group of people. So maybe that's partial legislation, right? Maybe it's caste legislation, but it's not caste legislation as such. It's not partial legislation as such. They're just abrogating the judicial procedures required by due process of law. So so I reject that as well. The third possibility for substantive due process is uh, just that there was a changed understanding as a result of anti-slavery constitutionalist, these abolitionist constitutional thinkers. And Randy Burnett has done a lot of great work on them. But even, even then, you know, uh, when you look carefully at what they said, it was all conventional procedural due process. When they said slavery violated due process of law. They didn't say, oh, because slavery is is inherently unjust or violates natural rights, or obviously they believed all of that. But when they talked about due process of law, they said there is not a single slave in the District of Columbia who's been deprived of his liberty through an indictment and a trial by jury, right? That's a classic conventional procedural due process, right? So my view, you know, I go through those and show why I think they're wrong. And I argue ultimately that due process was procedural. It, it had these two minimum requirements. First, there just had to be law. There had to be established law on the books. You know, before someone could take away your life, liberty, or property, you have to violate some known and existing rules. Uh, and then your violation of those rules have to be adjudicated according to some fundamental minimum of procedure. This, I think, is very close, if not identical, to the McConnell-Chapman view that they take in their Yale Law Journal article, um, Due Process of Separation of Powers. And so that's the position I take in the book.
0: So maybe you could talk then a little bit about uh, equal protection then as well. I, I felt like your position on equal protection was a little bit different than the conventional wisdom, but maybe closer than it is with respect to to due process yes so
1: you know of course there's a conventional originalist wisdom and there's conventional modern day supreme court wisdom and (laughs) and those uh, aren't necessarily the same thing in in this book i argue that equal protection is very narrow it does require equality but equality in something very specific the protection of the laws what was the protection of the laws well, in short, the protection of the laws was the flip side of due process of law. They're, they were two sides of the same coin, okay? Due process of law says only the government can take away your life, liberty, or property, right? And only with due process of law. The protection of the laws is the flip side. It's the legal protection the government had to give you so you could enjoy and exercise whatever life, liberty, and property rights you had against private interference it was legal protection against private interference with your rights, right? So due process of law explains how the government can interfere with your rights. Protection of the laws is legal protection against private interference. It means the government must protect you against mob violence. Mob violence, mob rule was the quintessential violation of the protection of the laws. The government, the state had to protect you against private violence. It also, it meant that, you know, they have to protect you against, um, assaults and batteries and other kinds of crimes. And it meant judicial remedies. Judicial remedies. Judicial remedies were the key component to the protection of the laws. If someone commits an injury, you get an injury, someone commits this, this against you, you have a right to redress in courts. That's what protection of the laws meant. And that's what Blackstone said in the commentaries, right? The remedial part of the law, he said, is what we mean by protection of the laws. John Marshall in Marbury v. Madison. Says um, the very you know essence of civil liberty is the right of every citizen or person right to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury. So the thing about it is today equal protection does all of the equality work, okay, in, under the Fourteenth Amendment. But it wasn't supposed to do that at all, right? It doesn't uh, equal protection of the laws. It doesn't require equality in life, liberty, or property. Rights? Not at all. It simply says whatever rights you happen to have under the law, as unequal as they are, right? The government at least has to provide you protection of the laws equally for whatever rights you have. So it's it's an important concept. It's a central concept, but it's much much narrower. And here, you know, uh, in the book, I'll just add this, and then I'll wrap up. Um, I take a position very similar to what Christopher Green has said in the literature, and and I think Evan Burnick has a paper. Uh, that takes a similar position as well. though That paper is much more recent.
0: Well, so in a lot of ways, I feel like the discussion of privileges and immunities is really at the core of the argument in an an interesting way, which is kind of especially uh, unusual because at least modern jurisprudence seems to not talk about Privileges and immunities at all. So, I mean, I wonder if you could think of, if you could talk a little bit about sort of what what we what sort of the kind of conventional wisdom is today on privileges and immunities. Why you think that's wrong, and sort of what your position on what the proper understanding of privileges and immunities in the Fourteenth Amendment is.
1: Yeah. So. So. The the book is obviously a comprehensive introduction, you know, to the to section one. But really, the heart of it is indeed the privileges or immunities clause, which I argue was intended to do much of the anti discrimination work that the equal protection clause does uh, uh, today. Now, the conventional originalist wisdom, I mean, it's started to change a little bit in the last couple years. Uh, Maybe you know, I should say in the last twenty years, but there hasn't been much movement. There's been a bit more in the last few years. Um, the conventional wisdom has been that the privileges or immunities clause probably incorporates the bill of rights. So actually almost no originals today uh, thinks incorporation is wrong. Many thinks many, many originalists think incorporation should be accomplished under the privileges or immunities clause, right. Instead of substantive due process. I think I am the only originalist, certainly the only young originalist, you know, maybe under 60 or something who thinks incorporation is probably still wrong in terms of the best original meaning of the privileges or immunities clause. Um, And then there's another view of the privileges or immunities clause that says it doesn't merely incorporate the Bill of Rights, but also guarantees other fundamental unenumerated rights, economic rights, contract rights, right? The stuff of Lochner, if you will. Uh, um, The civil libertarians love this argument, the uh, Institute for Justice folks you know, kind of uh, love this argument. Um, and they rely on this old case, Corfield v. Coriel, you know, where, where Justice Bushrod Washington described a lot of the fundamental rights of the citizen, and they included economic rights, the right to earn a living and pursue an occupation, a lawful trade, uh, and, and so on. Well, my argument is that the Privileges or Immunities Clause does neither. It doesn't protect any fundamental rights at all. It is an equality, anti-discrimination provision through and through. That's all it does. And so it's an anti-discrimination provision with respect to civil rights under state law. What does that mean? That means uh, that um, uh, California. Yeah, if it wants, can ban handguns. I think it means California can ban handguns. But what California can't do is say only black citizens can't own guns, right? Or only Asian citizens can't operate, you know, laundromats and wood buildings, right? It's it, it means the state can deny its citizens whatever civil rights it wants, right? It can give them whatever civil rights it wants. What it can't do is provide civil rights uh, in a discriminatory way, right? It can't discriminate without. Some a reasonable uh, basis. That's all it does. So it doesn't incorporate the Bill of Rights, doesn't guarantee a fundamental minimum of contract rights, you know, or anything like Lochner. It requires simply equality with respect to civil rights under state law. That's at least what I argue. And there's some evidence for that, which I'm happy to get into as well.
0: Sure. I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about why you think that's the right way to think about the privileges or immunities element of the 14th amendment and why you think that this is a more consistent way of thinking about what the 14th amendment was supposed to accomplish
1: well it's the only reading that makes that makes it work that makes the whole thing work it's the only one that works and here and here's why here's why i mean it, it requires a couple puzzle pieces First thing to, to, to remember, it's important to remember that, you know, the vast majority of the framers and, and the members uh, of Congress, of the 39th Congress, the, the, the major objective for them was to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act of 1866. That was, that was the main objective, right? There had been these black codes in the South that systematically designed the new freedmen and women the same contract rights, the same property rights, the same uh, gun ownership rights, right, as white citizens enjoyed. And the Civil Rights Act of 1866 uh, was supposed to abolish the Black Codes. Well, how did it do that? How did it do that? The Civil Rights Act of 1866 declared persons with some exceptions, right, like Indians not taxed and so on. Uh, to be citizens of the United States. So persons born in the United States were citizens of the United States, okay? And then the Civil Rights Act says, and such citizens, again, such is a cross-reference back, such citizens, so such citizens of the United States shall be entitled to the same right to sue, to lease, hold property, enter into contracts, and so on, as is enjoyed by white citizens. That's what it says, okay, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 is an anti-discrimination provision. It doesn't require the state to give certain fundamental contract rights or certain fundamental property rights. It simply says whatever rights it gives um, uh, white citizens, a state must accord black citizens equally and all other citizens, right, free of arbitrary discrimination. Well, this the 14th Amendment was intended to constitutionalize that act, right, both to provide a constitutional assure constitutional footing for it, but also just to enshrine it in the fundamental law in case, you know, the the Southern Democrats came into power, they could repeal the civil rights law in the future, right? So the point is the 14th Amendment was intended to constitutionalize the, the, the Civil Rights Act. But only the anti-discrimination reading of the Privileges or Immunities Clause does the trick, because this should just be clear from our previous discussion. The Equal Protection Clause is often thought to accomplish that purpose, but it doesn't. It doesn't because equal protection is about equal protection of the laws. The protection of the laws was only about judicial remedy. It was legal protection against private violence. The protection of the laws doesn't actually define anyone's life, liberty, or property interests. It it doesn't require equality in actual property rights. It doesn't require equality in liberty rights. It doesn't require any sort of equality in, in civil rights. It simply requires equality and legal protection for whatever rights the government chooses to give. So something else must require equality in actual civil rights, right? And if it's not the equal protection clause, it has to be the privileges or immunities clause. And indeed, I show that if you look at these uh, privileges or immunities clauses, including the comedy clause in Article Four of the Constitution, and you know other similar clauses from you know international treaties and state constitutions, they were. All overwhelmingly, with few exceptions, about anti-discrimination. They were all about anti-discrimination between two groups of people, or two, you know, places or or, or times, and so on. So, so when you when you look at that, uh, it paints an overwhelmingly convincing picture that the Privileges or Immunities Clause was supposed to be anti-discrimination work uh, that was supposed to constitutionalize the Civil Rights Act of eighteen sixty six.
0: So, Alon, the sort of conventional current approach is to think that civil liberties are primarily protected via substantive due process and and equal protection. How would the approach or the kind of conceptualization of the kind of civil liberties work of the 14th Amendment that you're suggesting be different as a practical matter or as a kind of conceptual way of approaching the kinds of questions that these uh, problems pose?
1: Yeah. So there, there's no doubt that, that when after the Privileges or Immunities Clause was written out of the Constitution by the Slaughterhouse Cases you know, in 1873, whatever equality work they were supposed to do, was transferred to the Equal Protection Clause. And whatever fundamental rights work they were supposed to do, if any, was transferred to the Substantive Due Process Clause. Right, So so it could be that there's no difference. Now, of course, I argue, as, as we've just discussed, that I, I think Substantive Due Process is probably wrong. So if we're originalists and if we're not bound by precedent, if that doesn't bother us at all, you know, then I think that means mo- most of Substantive Due Process goes out the window. Some the of sub- the Substantive Due Process cases might reconceptualized as equality cases, by the way, but that's a a separate discussion. Many of the equal protection cases can be reimagined um, as privileges or immunities cases, right? I make an argument that Obergefell v. Hodges is a a plausible case, a plausible outcome under the privileges or immunities clause, under the anti-discrimination reading of the privileges or immunities clause. But this does mean we lose some things, right? I'm not this originalist that just always leads to modern day results, right? That everyone's going to like, right? Uh, there are some key differences, right? One is incorporation. I think goes out the window. Um, this is going to be hard for many people to stomach, um, but in some respects, you know, especially if you're a liberal or progressive and you worry about what the modern day Supreme Court is going to do to the Second Amendment or the First Amendment, right? It might even be better, you know, to let states experiment with a lot of these rights you know, and there'll be something in it for liberals and something in it for conservatives, right? Um, Maybe uh, some states get to ban handguns. um, And maybe some states um, can prohibit, you know, uh, a certain campaign spending that Citizens United allows. On the other hand, maybe some states won't require, you know, suppression of evidence or, or, you know, things like that for for improper searches. I don't know. But the point is, there could be something in it for everyone. The other thing to, to keep in mind, aside from the incorporation issue, is um, the privileges or immunities clause is in another respect narrower than modern equal protection jurisprudence. The privileges and immunities of citizens was in, in, included a ca- the category of rights called civil rights to the exclusion of political rights. Civil rights are those rights that are, are natural rights, you know, that we have in the state of nature. They don't depend on political society. You enter into political society and, and, and the laws, you know, uh, 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 shape and, re- and regulate your natural rights, but you had them before you entered political society. Uh, political rights are rights like holding office, like voting, maybe being on a jury that only exists by virtue of being as a member of a political community. Political rights were not included within this term of the privileges or immunities of citizenship. So I think that means cases like one person, one vote has to be reversed, right? If, I, if I'm right about this, because that has to do with voting, right? It has to do with Political rights, and so uh, that was an equal protection decision. Uh, under my conception of the Fourteenth Amendment, you know that is a clear candidate, you know, for for something that's wrong, right? So, so a lot, so all of this is a way of saying a lot of the anti discrimination work perhaps can be done um, uh, the same under either clause, but there will be important differences.
0: In the book, you talk specifically about both Brown. And Obergefell. I wonder if you could sort of walk us through each one of those cases, and sort of how you think they would most plausibly play out under the understanding of the Fourteenth Amendment that you're suggesting.
1: Yeah. So, so start with you know, Brown v. Board of Education. Um, you know, there there are sort of two questions that have to be answered here. One is is education, is public education a civil right subject to the non-discrimination requirement of the privileges or immunities clause? And then the second is, if, if it is, is separate but equal, does that qualify or does it not qualify? And I think public education, whether it was, however it was considered in, in 1868, in 1955, it was certainly a civil right. I don't think it was a political right. I mean, now there was a, uh, people believe that there was this category, of so-called social rights. Uh, it's not at all clear to me, by the way, that this was a really entrenched category. Um, the, the distinction, at least for purposes of the comedy clause, Article 4, right, the privileges and immunities clause in our constitution, which was the precursor to the privileges or immunities clause, social rights never featured in that at all. It was always civil rights versus political rights. Do you have it in the state of nature, or do you have it only because of civil society or political community, like you know, voting and holding office? Well, education is not something that depends on a political community. Um, maybe it's a close call, but it's certainly plausible to say that it's a natural right regulated by by civil law. Uh, and so, I think it's more of a civil right. Than a civil right? There was even a case. Uh, from the 1830s that I talk about in the book, the Prudence Crandall case, where private education was certainly understood to be a civil right within the meaning of the privileges and immunities clause. So, if the question is, is it more like a civil right or a political right? I think education clearly falls like you know a, a civil right. Um, asterisking, you know, of course, uh, the conventional wisdom that the framers of in 1868 also distinguished. Social rights, I'm not convinced that that was, that was a firm distinction. I think the real distinction was civil rights versus political rights. But, but in any event, if I'm right about that, public education is a civil right. Well, what do you do then about separate but equal? What do you do about separate but equal? Well, I think the answer is simple. It's what, you know, the legendary professor Charles Black said after the Brown v. Board decision, you know, in, in, in his, in his article, um, I can't remember what it was called. I think it was called, uh, the desegregation decisions, but but I can't remember. But Charles Black said, look, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, look, once we know, right, what every person in Texas knew and in Mississippi knew and in Alabama knew, right, that these laws of the segregation laws, weren't intended to create equality. The whole purpose of the segregation laws, the whole purpose was to keep one race of Americans in perpetual subordination, right? To another race of Americans. That's why the laws existed, right? Or as as just, just Harlan said in his dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, the law was not created so much to keep the white man away from the black man as much as to keep the black man away from the white man. In other words, judges don't have to turn a blind eye to what is common knowledge, right? That the very purpose of these laws were discriminatory. The very purpose was to keep one race of Americans separate and therefore inferior. Well, all of those together, and you have an originalist argument for Brown v. Board under the privileges or immunities clause, and it doesn't seem to be a particularly difficult argument, at least not to me.
0: Well, what about Obergefell? Because you suggest you can still make a good case for that, even though maybe a slightly more difficult one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, that is harder. Obergefell is harder. So again, separating uh, uh, the question of a uh, 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 of social rights, or at least asterisking the question, the issue of social rights, which I'm not convinced was actually a firmly rooted legal distinction in in the law. Um, uh, So uh, assuming that marriage and all the other privileges that come with it is a civil right, right? It's a natural right that is regulated by civil society. I think no one can deny that, right? It is subject to the injunction of the privileges or immunities clause. Now, of course, the privileges or immunities clause doesn't prohibit all discriminations, right? It only prohibits arbitrary discriminations. That's why, you know, 18-year-olds can't drink. It's why 14-year-olds can't drive. I mean, there are all sorts of things um, that there are rational discriminations or non-arbitrary discriminations. Uh, and the question then becomes, well, is, is uh, denying gay Americans the right uh, to marriage and all the privileges that come with that abridging the, the privileges and immunities of those citizens by giving, you know, heterosexual citizens more rights, more privileges and immunities than giving, you know, than the state gives to its its gay gay citizens. And, you know, uh, I argue uh, that, you know, once uh, you recognize that being gay is, is not a choice and that they cannot, you know, meaningfully marry someone uh, of the opposite sex, uh, that uh them, you know, the right to marry, where uh, 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 marriage, right, I mean, I guess I should back up for a second, right, once it's, rec- marriage has multiple purposes, I, and I think everyone in, in, agrees on this, right, uh, maybe one first purpose is to to promote procreation, right, and perhaps that's the purpose, but it's also certainly the purpose of marriage, right, to to give a, a union uh, of two people on the basis of love, it's it's also a welfare institution, right, Enrichness. Uh, in and in, or in poor, right, in sickness or in, and in, or in health, right, the whole point is you want two people to be economically dependent on each other. Uh, and, and and that way, they, they're less likely to resort to, to the welfare state, you know, or, or the healthcare system, you know, if things uh, go, go south, right, two people are are better than one in, in, in this respect. So it's a welfare institution, it's an institution based on love, for the purpose of love, and it's potentially, you know, an, an institution, for the promotion, say, of, of procreation and, and childbearing, well, gay Americans can participate in at least two of the three purposes, right? And so, once you recognize uh, that being gay is not a choice, and they can't meaningfully marry someone of the opposite sex, it seems like a pretty arbitrary, um, uh, a discrimination to deny them that right, you know, especially in a world of no fault divorce, you know, and, and where marriage for straight people is more or less fundamentally about about love too, right? So that's sort of what the argument looks like. Now here's here's the point. Could you know it's a it's not a foolproof case because again the state could come by and just say yeah it's not an arbitrary discrimination like we have a legitimate moral reason uh, or, or or just a moral reason you know we want to encourage um, heterosexual marriages because we want to encourage people to think of marriage um, in term not in terms of love right we want to, people to think. Uh, about marriage strictly in terms of the children, you know, to make them less likely to divorce when they fall out of love and so on. Fine. I mean, it's not crazy to think those things. And if it's not crazy to think those things, then maybe it's not an arbitrary uh, discrimination. My point is only if the Supreme Court had written, you know, a two paragraph, you know, opinion saying privileges or immunities clause, anti-discrimination with respect to civil rights under state law, marriage, clearly civil right. Is it arbitrary to deny gays access to these privileges when they can, you know, fulfill these two purposes of the institution and, and and so on. At least it would have looked like law, right, rather than the court just kind of making it up, which I I think is the only impression one can reasonably get from reading Justice Kennedy's opinion in that case.
0: Well, so Alan, in closing, I guess my kind of big picture question for you is for someone who's not necessarily already sort of inclined toward an originalist interpretation of the Constitution or the 14th Amendment. Are there reasons for people like that to find... Your reading and suggestions about how we should understand the Fourteenth Amendment and the various civil rights provisions it embodies, or 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 not?
1: Well, so fortunately I, I have a dodge to that question, which is really we don't have a choice anymore. I mean, the Supreme Court is going in this originalist direction. And the question now is what you know? What are they going to think the 14th Amendment means? And I think the vision that I've given for it, this version based on this legal language, these historic sort of terms of art, I think they chart a very uh, surprising and pleasing middle ground between sort of the narrow Scalian view, right? Whereas if it was true in 1868, it's true today, or if it wasn't true in 1868, it's not true today, right? On the one hand, and this... Um, balkanesque anything goes um and and modern day justices have to pour their extra textual you know values modern day values into these you know majestic generalities which both of which seem unsatisfactory i think my approach charts a very you know sort of happy middle course on 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 a lot of these issues um with while at the same time you know it, it applies to these new and changing circumstances, but it's also much more uh, uh, constrained. Are there some things that are, that are going to be interesting like one person one book? Yeah you know uh, that that's interesting. incorporation interesting might that might liberals like it though? yeah you know it's, it's not clear that liberals won't like that right um, So in one respect, you know my readers and listeners don't have much of a choice. The court is going in this direction. The question is will they will they get the correct original meaning? And is that original meaning going to be scary? You know, it doesn't mean the 14th amendment excludes gays. Does it exclude women? You know, and the answer is no, it doesn't. It doesn't exclude gays. It doesn't exclude women from the protection of the laws, from the privileges and immunities of citizenship. Gays are protected. Women are protected. We're we're all protected equally. Um, And I think, um, you know, the original meaning of that amendment uh, uh, is an inspiring meaning. The amendment was intended to be a huge improvement over the original Constitution, and it's why I really, really do think it's it's uh, you know uh, as the title indicates, uh, our our second founding.
0: Well, Alan, thanks so much for coming back on the show. I really enjoyed reading your book. It was provocative and uh, and really. Wonderfully written. And I encourage listeners to check it out because we've only touched the surface of uh, a lot of the ideas that you discuss in it. Well, thanks so much for having me.
1: Ask your daddy or your mother to tell you about the Constitution of the United States. The men who formed the United States wrote out the rules they thought we should live by. And we call what they wrote the Constitution.
0: Little girls and little boys all want to understand and read the
1: Constitution.
0: It's the basis of the laws of our land.